0: I'm Nick Spencer and this is Reading Our Times, the podcast that explores the books and ideas that are shaping us today. Listen with us and we'll introduce you to conversations about the human brain, meritocracy, inequality, dementia and human rights. Writing a history of the Western world, or the Western mind, is not straightforward. It demands a remarkably wide set of interests and skills. It's the kind of thing that it's easy to do badly. But writing such a history and simultaneously mapping it on to something that's seemingly completely different, such as the structure of the human brain, that's a different matter altogether. It's not the kind of thing you should try at home. In 2009, Yale University Press published a long book called The Master and His Emissary. It was by a relatively unknown author named Ian McGilchrist. Ian was a former consultant psychiatrist and clinical director at the Bethlehem Royal and Maudsley Hospital, but his early academic interests lay in teaching literature. He brought this impressive range of interests to a book which slowly grew in popularity and renown until it achieved the status of a modern classic, a fascinating exploration of neuroscience and culture, and the way in which, as the book's subtitle has it, the divided brain was involved in making the Western world. Ian, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thank you very much, Nick. Let's start with the brain. Most people will know that it is divided – In the sense of having two hemispheres, but few will have any sense of why or what difference that makes. So can you tell us a little bit about how the left and the right hemispheres differ and also how that might have come about? Yes. I mean, in
1: a way, it's a staggering thing that we don't pay more attention to the division of the brain. It's very odd. It exists to make connections. Why is it whoppingly divided? Well, it seems that the key thing that I can point to is that each hemisphere pays a different kind of attention to the world. And when I first realized that, the full enormity of this didn't quite hit me. But of course, how we attend to something changes what it is we find. And there is no dispute amongst neurologists that the two hemispheres pay different kinds of attention. The left hemisphere, very narrow, piecemeal attention to a detail that it's already concerned with. The right hemisphere, meanwhile, is giving the background, if you like, the overall sustained, broad, vigilant attention to the world as a whole. And usually, whatever it is the left hemisphere is focusing on was noticed first by the right hemisphere, and then the left hemisphere locked onto it. Now, the reasoning behind that, well, my reasoning behind it, why we do that, why all animals that we look at actually have this asymmetry in their neural structure, is that we need to do, all animals, without exception, need to do two things uh, simultaneously. One is to get stuff, and the other is to avoid being got. And the left hemisphere is preoccupied with getting, getting food, picking up a stick to build a nest, whatever, competitive, rapid, quick and dirty. The right hemisphere, meanwhile, is looking out for predators, for family, for friends, for everything else that is happening without preconception. So you've got two kinds of attention being paid. And since attention changes what you find, you've effectively got two kinds of world coming into being for you at the
0: same time. It's probably worth asking a kind of epistemological question at this point, in terms of how we actually know any of this. Well, it's quite easy, actually.
1: (laughs) I mean, you can do experiments with animals and birds and so forth. One that I think is rather interesting is, um, in one experiment, lizards had one eye taped over, and they were exposed to a simulated predator and you would expect them to use their left eye, their right hemisphere, to be looking at this predator. So the ones that had their left eye uncovered did exactly that. The ones that had the left eye taped over tried to look using the taped-over left eye, <laughs> which is really interesting. But basically, you can watch birds and animals, and they pay attention in this way. When they're trying to get hold of something, they use their right eye. When they're trying to look out for the hole, they use their left eye. Now, I just need to put in a little caveat there. Um, This is not the case in humans that the left eye goes just to the right hemisphere and the right eye to the left hemisphere. We have eyes on the front of our head. So in our case, it is that the left visual field goes to the right hemisphere and the right visual field to the left hemisphere of both eyes. But with animals that have their, and most animals and birds have an eye on either side, it's just straight cross-wired. And so you can observe this. The other main source of information comes from human beings. You know, when people have a right hemisphere stroke, they have what is described as a pathological narrowing of the window of attention. So they just see this tunnel vision, if you like. So it is really interesting. It's not that there's anything gone wrong with their visual system. Visual
0: systems the same. It's the attentional system that changes. But it's also important to emphasise, isn't it, that the brain is astonishingly plastic and it's not as if one hemisphere can't pick up some of the tasks, some of the functions of the other hemisphere if it's been damaged. That's true, isn't it? That is true up to a point. It's certainly true early in
1: life. The earlier the better, really, Um, up to about the age of 9 or 10. After that, it gets slightly more difficult. But even people, you know, adults who've had a stroke, some function can be recovered in the other hemisphere. And what's interesting here is that they have a kind of cooperation which is also based on competition. I mean, often it is a kind of cooperation to specialize and to have a kind of almost antagonism. (laughs) Uh, That's not necessarily detrimental. That may actually be helpful. What we find is that when there is competition for space, unfortunately, it's the left hemisphere functions that tend to crowd out the right hemisphere functions. So once language is lost, if it has to come back in only one hemisphere, the losses will mainly be in the right hemisphere functions. Now, that is interesting because you have to take that with the fact that the right hemisphere can actually do everything, pretty much. It can't do language as well as the left hemisphere. But it has a surprisingly large vocabulary if the left hemisphere is knocked out. And it's the fact that the right hemisphere can pay narrowly focused, targeted attention to a detail, just like the left hemisphere, if it has to. But
0: the left hemisphere can't pay broad, sustained, vigilant attention, even if it has to. And that's really important, isn't it? Because it's not as if there isn't, as it were, a perfect equality going on here. Because, as you say, the right hemisphere is able to do more in these circumstances than the left hemisphere is. And as you said earlier on, the left hemisphere pays specific attention to things that have come into its world, as it were, via the right hemisphere. And that's the source of your controlling metaphor of the master his emissary, isn't it? Yes, yes.
1: The idea there is that everything about the brain is asymmetrical. In fact, everything probably about life and even about the inanimate cosmos is asymmetrical, as Pasteur noted in the 1870s and as Pierre Curie noted around 1900, that asymmetry is more important in the cosmos than symmetry. But in this particular case, it refers to the relationship between the hemispheres and it's very important that the right hemisphere, as it were, is the master, is the one that is in charge. The left hemisphere knows less but because it knows less, thinks it knows it all, which is a common problem in life. (laughs) And... The the master in his emissary refers to a myth of a, a wise spiritual master who looked after a community so well that it flourished and grew. After a while, he realized he couldn't look after all its needs himself, but he realized something more important, which was that even if he could, he shouldn't get involved with certain kinds of business because it would interfere with his overall oversight. So he appointed his brightest and best helper to go about on his behalf and do the business and this helper bright as he was wasn't bright enough and didn't realize what it was he didn't know and thought he knew everything and pretended to be the master and as a result the master the emissary and the whole community went down to ruin now i feel there's something like this happening in our culture which is that the the bossy know-it-all simplistic left hemisphere that thinks it's oh, it's very straightforward it's all just a mechanism you know it's very easy is drowning out the wisdom of the right hemisphere. And if I may just add, in writing this book, I've been reading very, very widely in a, a whole range of kinds of literature. But one of the things that has come up is that in many different traditions in the world, there is this same image of the sort of articulate intellect being a useful servant, but a very poor master. And it's said that Einstein said that. I can't actually trace it, but it's certainly attributed to him. And it's very much in his Mm. spirit that he would have said that, actually. But it's certainly there in Mm. Chinese culture, in Hindu
0: culture, and so on. I want to lead up to our particular cultural moment, but do so via a significant section of the second half of The Master and His Emistry, in which you trace the impacts of these different forms of attention on cultural moments in the Western world. Now, I think it's really important, I guess, to clear up a possible misunderstanding at this point it is easy to read what you say in a simplistic way of saying, well, there are left hemisphere periods of history, and there are right hemisphere periods of history. And that seems to me to be a little bit too simplistic. That's not quite what you're saying, is it? It's more that there are forms of attention, which are associated with one hemisphere or other, that, that gain kind of the cultural upper hand at a certain point. Can you give me a few examples of that? Yes.
1: I mean, the first thing to say is that I say our culture is rather over-obsessed with the left hemisphere point of view at the moment. Um, and people say, well, what would a right hemisphere-dominated situation look like? And I just need to point out that a right hemisphere-dominated situation is one in which the right hemisphere, as it were, the master knows he needs the emissary, appointed the emissary, and so the two work together. There is never an extreme right hemisphere situation, but there can be an extreme left hemisphere situation. And what I did in the second half of the master and emissary is look at the, the various shifts in the history of ideas through that lens. And I suppose in our own era, I would say there's an excessive abstraction, bureaucratization, an excessively rigid systematizing, putting people and things into categories rather than attending to the complex uniqueness, uh, an inability to understand ambiguity, the need for opposites sometimes to be brought together because they contain a richer truth than one simple point of view. All that is suggestive of the left hemisphere, mindset rather than a more flexible right hemisphere mindset. To give examples, as you asked me to do, a couple of very obvious ones are the end of the Roman Empire. You can see this in the architecture, in the depiction of the human face, in what happened, a strictly hierarchical military empire followed by a decline. And in our own history recently, I would see this as the Reformation, as the great first blow of the left hemisphere, trying to simplify everything, get rid of the ambiguous. It's all written down in a book, and it's chapter and verse, and it's all right. It's written by God. And this leads to all kinds of problems. Kind of fundamentalism, basically.
0: Yeah, well, we spoke to Charles Taylor a little earlier in the series, and his, one of the phrases from a secular age is the disciplinary self that emerges in the Reformation. Mm-hmm. It seems to me the disciplinary self is mm-hmm. a very left hemisphere self, isn't it? It is very much so. I read the reports
1: of the British ambassador in Antwerp in the 15th century as he watched people going around destroying Utterly priceless churches with medieval manuscripts being burnt, windows smashed, statues pulled down. I mean, the, the scale of the loss. And what was fascinating is it's very much like the situation now, where a quite small group of people systematically went around ruining the culture, while the mass of people stood by gaping. They weren't really in with the, with the destroyers, but the same destruction is happening now by very noisy voices in our culture.
0: There is a very important. Additional point to make here, isn't there? In that, what you see at various moments in the Western culture is, as you said, a shift from one form of attention to another. But in around 1800 or so, the left hemisphere learns how to actually remake the whole world in its image, doesn't yes, it? Yes, yes. That's really significant. Tell us a bit more about that.
1: Well, it's identified with the movement that unfortunately has been called Romanticism. The trouble with that is that it makes it sound soppy and emotional, whereas in fact it gave rise to the most insightful and rigorous, in fact, philosophy that the world has ever seen. The great genius of the period, probably from this point of view, was Goethe, who is, in my view, inexhaustible in his insights into the nature of reality. But it's also there in the various philosophers of the age and, and indeed the poets of the age, Blake and Hölderlin and Heine, but also, of course, the great philosophers,
0: Hegel and Schelling, for me. But at the same time as you have the Romantic movement, you have the Industrial Revolution. Yes. And the Industrial Revolution is where, he, well, I mean, in simplistic terms, again, the left hemisphere begins to assert control, not over just the self, but over the entirety of the world, and begins to make the world in its own image, doesn't it? Absolutely. There's a number of things about that, but I mean, the first
1: thing is that the main raison d'etre of the left hemisphere is to manipulate the world, to get stuff, as I say, and it controls the right hand with which we do the grasping of things. We, We grasp and get. And since the Industrial Revolution happened, we've got terribly good at raping nature, grasping what we need and just taking it as if it was resource, and not respecting nature as a living network of beings which include ourselves. We belong to nature. What happened was we started to feel external to nature and able to treat it as an object, which in the era of romanticism was not the case. But one of the important things is this. The right hemisphere is our reality tester. So the left hemisphere is more living in a world of theory. It's trying out a theory, usually a very simple theory, because theory is always simple compared with the complexity of life. It's like a map compared with the world that it maps. It hasn't the complexity of the world, but if it had the complexity of the world, it wouldn't be useful as a map. So it's inevitably just offering us a temporary theory the trouble is when you take that for the reality, and I think in the world we're in at the moment, we're in hock to various stupid theories that look brilliantly clever on paper, but really don't match up to reality. Now, the way that we reality test is by going to the right hemisphere, which is very empirical. It says, "You may think that left hemisphere, but look at look out there, out the window. It's not like that actually." And what happened with the Industrial Revolution is that we created a world that, when you look out of the window, looks remarkably like the left hemisphere as well—made of concrete, inflexible, rigid lines, uh, two-dimensional screens, alienation from the world. All these things. So, in a way, it's created what I call the Hall of Mirrors, in which when you look for reality, you
0: find the left hemisphere's version of it. And the. Worrying thing about that is that it becomes totally self-perpetuating, doesn't it? Because if you don't have that external context, that other, Mm. to correct and refine and chastise our particular focused attention on the world, it seems self-evident that... What the left hemisphere sees is right.
1: Well, it is. It's money for old rope articulating the left hemisphere's view because it's, it's very simple and therefore very easy to make it consistent. It's just like A plus B equals whatever. Whereas the right hemisphere is constantly dealing with a complex system. And, and nowadays we have whole departments <laughs> devoted to understanding complex systems. And everything in reality is a complex system, which doesn't work like that at all and has all kinds of paradoxical elements in it. And it's very important that in the past, our traditions embodied some of this wisdom that's passed on, our intuitions and our embodiment, in fact, attending to our embodied self and our feelings, helped us to situate reason, not to abandon it, but true reason is not just rationalizing in the way that a logic machine or computer would do it, it's balancing reason with judgment. And judgment comes from experience. And between, say, 1400 and 1830, it was still possible to have that as an outcome of an, an educated person's life. But nowadays, I'm afraid, people are educated into a, a rigid, inflexible, systematic way of thinking, which is the, the right way to think. And anybody else who says anything else is wrong.
0: There's also an important narrative going on here with regards to self, isn't there? It seems to me, again, this is a simplification, that our concept of the self is shaped by this whole process, whereby historically we have been more likely to see ourselves within a wider context, within a network, within relationships, in relationships with the other that moves to a more solipsistic, individualistic idea of the self as a kind of atomic unit. And then, into the 20th century, that self actually disintegrates, It's almost as if we pay so much particular attention in our introspection, that we just fall apart.
1: Yes. And that, of course, is what happens in, as it were, a left hemisphere dominated vision of the world. And modernism, And to an extent, postmodernism, though it's hardly unitary, have embraced this notion of the self as fragmented. There are three things, three overarching contexts, which give us a sense of belonging in the world, not just inspecting the world as a curious object that's fallen across our path. Uh, like Paley's watch that just, hmm, what's this? And they are our relationship with the natural world, our relationship with one another uh, both in, uh, in space and time, so as a culture, as a society, as a family, and the relationship with the divine order. And these three things have always been present until quite recently, and each of them has been disrupted, leading to a sense of no longer belonging, and one thing that's absolutely fascinating is that if you look at the literature i, I had no idea until quite recently how incredibly powerful this literature is but being deracinated from the society, being separated from nature and not having any relationship with the divine are all enormously damaging to us cognitively, emotionally and to our spiritual health, our mental health and our physical health. The literature shows that people who have some sort of relationship with the divine other who live surrounded by and in contact with nature and live embedded in a social group live longer, are happier, are better adjusted are less distracted and just physically better i mean l- rates of cancer rates of heart attack those sort of things it's really mind-boggling better than going to the gym better than being on a diet better than not smoking <laughs> these are very very important losses and they begin i suppose with descartes with the idea of being separate from the body but it has gone on widening since since that
0: time well i want to move in a moment to the future because it's a slightly alarming narrative that we've been recounting here, one of disintegration and one of increasing levels of mental health problems and so on and so forth. But before I do that, I want to talk a little bit about the book you have been working on, because you've mentioned it a few times and I've been lucky enough to read read some of it. Effectively, what I'm trying to do
1: is to show the limits of reductionism, to show that we need a much more sophisticated way of attending to the world, which will give rise to a vision of the world as not inanimate, random, meaningless, and that we are the playthings of it, but that we are part of something, yes, that we probably can never understand fully, but we get intimations of, which is rich and alive and creative. And we play a role in that. The trouble is that the God word puts a lot of people off. What's fascinating is that if you ask people, do you have a religion? I don't know what it is, but it's not a very startling number of people say they have, 12%, 15%. But if you ask people, do you think there's more to this world than the materialist account of it? 90% will say yes. So what I'm really trying to do is to imagine that we haven't got a ready-made image of God, but to use a term, the divine or the sacred, whatever, as a placeholder for all the things of which we have intuitions that are much more complex and deep and very real, I mean, in experience. And I believe profoundly that, as it were, both the meaning that we find in life and the sense of the divine are not things that we create. There's a tendency in science, if you accept that these things exist, to say that we make them up to cheer ourselves up I believe this is not the case. I think that actually a, a proper examination of the world in a relatively dispassionate way would lead one to think it much more probable that there is something that corresponds to what this divine is than that there isn't. And I think that it's the business of our lives actually to explore with a reasonably open mind what that might be because I think it is a very rich thing in my
0: experience. In a sense, it's quite remarkable that given you know 200 years or so of increasingly left hemisphere-dominated forms of attention and uh, and a world made in the image of the left hemisphere, that that sense of the divine or the other or the transcendent remains so stubborn. It remains so real. I, I mean, I can give you chapter and verse on on the figures in this and that. We did some research at Theos a few years ago, just looking at people's attitudes to different forms of belief. And whereas the number of people who would put themselves in the religious category, I mean, it was it was larger than the 12, percent but it was still a minority now, the number of people who had a consistently materialistic, naturalistic view of the world was less than 10%. So we yeah. have this large grey area in the middle of people who sense or want to sense something else, something transcendent, something beyond, and yet either don't want or don't like the current vocabulary or the structure or the... Mm. mental approach to that they find in organized religions.
1: Yes, you raise a very good point there. I think that a lot of people who are what I would call honest agnostics are in many cases the people who are really dealing with the spiritual And I differentiate, as it were, extreme positions, as you say, very small groups of people who are fanatical atheists or fanatical religious uh, fundamentalists. And interestingly, they often are engineers. I mean, there's research being done on this, and uh, engineers are overrepresented in this world, engineers being people who think, generally speaking, in a fairly left hemisphere way. Uh, I have a number of engineers who've written to me actually saying, I am an engineer, after reading your book, I realize I've missed out a whole lot in my life, and you've opened the windows for me, so I see it. So I think I think I would make a sort of distinction between the necessarily hard to express, because if you can express it easily, you're not expressing what we're talking about. There have been many, many pronouncements in many traditions that say if you think you know what it is, you don't know it. Oriental traditions say that, St. Augustine said that. And People who are genuinely grappling, and it always will be a sort of grappling with what this means, are the people who are really bringing it into being for themselves and experiencing it. So if only they didn't think, oh, because I can't sign up to a creed that asks me to believe six impossible things before breakfast, I'm not a believer. I'm not a religious person. But actually, they probably are, I think. And it's the business of religion not to
0: exclude such people. Do you see signs of hope? In all this because it would be very easy to tell an almost relentlessly negative story whereby we are damaging ourselves by an undue focus undue form of attention on the world and actually self-evidently we're doing great harm to the world yes and you could reach the conclusion well we're heading to hell in the handcart pretty rapidly are there signs of a rebalancing of the hemispheres a rebalancing of our attention that we give to the world
1: yes i think there are i call myself a hopeful pessimist but I think it's a fool who knows the future. I have crystal ball failure. Um, There have been moments in the past when humanity has done a very rapid shift in its way of thinking. If ever there was a time when we need to do it, it is now. The signs that I think are hopeful, the interest in spiritual things, I mean... I don't necessarily see eye to eye with Jordan Peterson on things, but one of the things he certainly does not hide is that he believes a spiritualized cosmos is a very real thing. And he has an enormous following. You know, there are many other figures that have drawn people to them in this way. And what I like is that when I go and talk, I think my message, which is a hopeful one, which is that we don't have to Carry on believing we're just machines, that we're just robots driven by our genes. And actually, that's a scientifically Wholly inaccurate metaphor. I believe Dawkins lived to regret ever having set it up, but I mean, a lot of people unfortunately believe it. You know, that we don't have to see the world that way. And afterwards, people come up to me and want to talk to me, and they are of all age groups. So it's not just um, oldies like me, but lots and lots of enthusiastic young people who say, you know, we're fed up with being sold this ridiculous image of what we are and what the world is. What can we do about it? And of course, in a way, what they want me to do is to say, well, if you do the following eight things, we'll be all right. But that's very left-handed. One of the things I emphasize in the book, in the very last part of it, is that we need to change our values. And that if we change our values, the rest of things will fall into place relatively easily. If we try to do the right things but with the wrong values still pertaining, then we will not really have changed anything very much. So yes, we definitely need practical action in a bullet point left hemisphere way. We need to do this and that to save the rainforest, etc. But unless we stop thinking of the rainforest as merely a resource that enables us to breathe and it's economically viable and so on, unless we actually respect it, for itself, for just being a wonder of the world, um, an expression of the vitality of the cosmos. Unless we can come to that, that place, then we
0: don't deserve to survive. We deserve to die. You don't cure the ills of instrumentalizing things by instrumentalizing them in a different way, do you? No, no you don't. I want to put one idea to you. We're having this conversation as the country is heading towards a second lockdown, I, I dare say when this actually goes to where we may well be in a, a second complete lockdown. <laughs> One of the things that's hit me yeah. really powerfully over this year is how much we need other people. People are zoomed out and 20 years or so we've been heading towards a culture so we can have all our meetings online and we can work remotely and so on and so forth. Well we've had that forced on us this yeah. year and maybe it's just me but I detect more mm. widely a deep yearning for actual physical embodied contact with other human beings because in another human being in that way you just catch a glimpse of the other to you and it refreshes who you are and technologically mediated interactions are a very pale imitation of the real thing so perhaps there could be a kind of a a post-COVID bounce in this direction, if you say what I mean.
1: Well, yes, and we have to balance two things. We've learned that actually a lot of things don't require everyone to be busily polluting the world, zooming around rather pointlessly. But on the other hand... We do, as you rightly say, very, very much need society. We need the togetherness of being with another person. You don't realize how much in daily life, ordinary daily life, you shake somebody's hand, you clap their arm, or you kiss somebody or whatever, and actually these are not small things. These actually are constantly grounding you, and I, I believe they're important. So yes, we do need to be together, and two images spring to mind about remoteness, and there are about two things um, very important to me. One is love, and the other is therapy. <laughs> Both of these are very bad when you're not actually in the person's presence. Um, no no phone call with a sweetheart is ever the same as being together with them, and actually, therapy is very hard to do over a link or on the phone, because there are many, many things that you observe in the room in real time, and I think that there's something going on in the room between you. I mean, I, don't ask me exactly what it is, but it's certainly more than you get when you just do it remotely.
0: Ian, it's been great to talk to you. The book is The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World. And I'm tempted to ask you when the follow-up is out, but I know from previous conversations that there might be a bit of editing to do.
1: (laughs) Well, I don't know. At the moment, my, my publisher says that it would make three books of 750 pages each so i don't quite know what is going to happen to it that's in the lap of the gods and i wait to hear it i've done what i can and no doubt in the end most of it will be
0: published well when it or when they are out i will be sure to invite you back on to reading our (laughs) times thank you very much indeed next week i'll be speaking to jonathan sumption about his book trials of the state law and the decline of politics reading our times comes to you from the think tank theos it's produced by phil bodger our team also includes abby allison lizzie stanley and elizabeth oldfield special thanks to nina humphreys who composed our theme tune and all the music you can subscribe to reading our times on apple podcasts and stitcher you can also find us on our website theosthinktank.co.uk where you can find all the episodes and leave feedback don't forget to rate and review us on itunes it'll help other people discover the podcast